I think there's no doubt about it that Christmas is one of my most favorite times of the year. I really enjoy the Christmas holidays. I have lots of fond memories of my children growing up, the sparkle in their eyes, or they'd see the Christmas tree with the lights twinkling. Now my grandchildren getting to enjoy that as well. It's just a great time of year. I also enjoy uh, the opportunity to give gifts to people. That's also a pleasure. I, I think, guess I would have to confess there's a little bit of child still left in me. Maybe there's a lot of child in it. I keep it under wraps most of the year. It kind of comes out at Christmas. Perhaps that's a truer statement. You know, I can remember that as a boy growing up, the excitement and anticipation that would build on Christmas morning. We lived in uh, back in Massachusetts, grew up in a, in a two-story home, and so we, uh, we couldn't go down Christmas morning until mom and dad were up. Maybe some of you can identify with that. And so we would sit at the top of the stairs outside their bedroom door waiting for them to get up. I don't know why they didn't want to get up at four in the morning, but they just didn't. <laughs> So we would sit there, and of course, I had three sisters, I was an only boy, and so it was always delegated to me to be the one to try to sneak down the stairs first and see what was going on down there, and these, this old house had creaky stairs, and my father had great hearing, and you know, I'd try every way to get down those stairs, and I'd hear, David, get back up those stairs, and I'd crawl back up and wait and wait, so that was... Those are some of my Christmas memories. They're very, very dear to me. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of creation awaited that first Christmas. There's a tremendous sense of expectation that flowed across the world. He tells us over in Galatians chapter 4 and in, in verse 4 that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son. That first great Christmas morning. God gave the greatest gift to the world imaginable, the gift of His own Son. And we find an account of that giving in Matthew chapter 1. So why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles there to Matthew chapter 1. If you are with us this morning and, and don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews and pew rack in front of you. You can reach there and Find one. Matthew chapter 1 begins with a genealogy. We looked at that genealogy briefly last week. I just call your attention back to it again because it's, it really is so rich. And in this uh, genealogy, Matthew is, uh, is consciously, self-consciously communicating something to the reader and that is that he is tying Jesus Christ most clearly to David and to Abraham and to the great covenants or promises that flowed from God to them. And so he gives us, as we talked about last time, three periods in the history of, of Israel, tying them back through the Davidic kingdom. We find there in the first six verses the origin of that great promise to David, the original promise, of course, to Abraham. In Genesis 17, verse 6, Abraham is told that kings will come from him. 
And the king, uh, above all kings, that flows from the lines or the loins of uh, Abraham, of course, is David. And so Matthew makes that known to us there in verse 6. And then he begins to talk about the rise of the Davidic throne, the Davidic kingdom, and through verse 11, and then following it, of course, with the eclipse of the Davidic throne in verses 12 through 16 as Israel entered into that great dark time. When all was dark, when all seemed hopeless, when it seemed as if there was no possibility for the people, when all of the great promises, all the optimism, all the enthusiasm of the nation had been quenched, in that great dark time, suddenly a light shone among the people. The ancient prophet said it this way in Isaiah chapter 9, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. At the time of the greatest darkness, the light of the Son of God shone forth. And Matthew describes it for us in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 1. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. It's really a very simple narrative. It's, it's surprisingly understated. Listen as I read what Matthew has recorded, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Very, very simple statement of the most amazing event in all of human history, really. Let me quickly set this up for you before we move into discussing really the theological implications of what has gone on here. As I say, it's a simple narrative. It begins talking about this young couple, this young couple, Joseph and Mary, It would have been common in those days of the first century for Joseph to have been ready to take a wife somewhere around the age of 16 or 17 years old. 
It would also be equally common for Mary to have been somewhere around 13 years old. Very much a young couple starting out life together. And their life starts out so much different than the average run-of-the-mill, huh? Now, it says they're betrothed. You see that, verse 18? Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal ceremonies in first century Judaism are much different than the engagement process that most of us are familiar with today. It would be a year-long betrothal period. It would begin with a with a somewhat formal ceremony, a solemn ceremony. Arranged marriages were very common in the first century. So the two different families, the family of Mary, the family of Joseph, would have gotten together and would have arranged a marriage for their children, probably sometime even before this. Of course, they would have most likely taken their children's wishes into account. So it's not just that they autocratically said, you're going to marry this person. They would take their feelings into account in the whole matter. And I think it's clear that Joseph and Mary were deeply in love with one another. They would enter into this somewhat solemn arrangement, this betrothal, that was initiated by a, by a vow, actually a solemn vow that the young man would make to his future wife. He would say something like this. By this you are set apart for me according to the law of Moses and Israel. Very simple statement, but a very powerful statement. Then he would show his earnest to complete the betrothal by making a payment to the girl's father, what's called a mohar or a bride payment. It would be either in the form of money or services. So in some way, he would demonstrate his commitment to the family by a transfer of properties to the girl's father. The girl's father would hold on to these properties or or the wealth created by his services as a life insurance policy for his daughter. Should something happen to her future husband and he pass from the scene, that would be available to care for her. And so that was the purpose of the Mohar. This betrothal period lasted about a year, as I say. During that time, the young man would go away and there would be very limited contact between the girl and the the man for that year's period. While he was away, he would be preparing his home. He would go away to prepare a place for her and when he was ready, he would come and receive her unto himself that where he is, she may be always. And so he would come back at the end of the betrothal period and he would receive his bride. And there would be great party and celebration and the townspeople would all join in. They were poor people. There were not that many uh, events in life that, would, that created the kind of joy that a marriage would create. And so the community would turn out and there would be a great possession, uh, procession and they would escort the young couple back to the groom's home. And there they would enter into a week-long period of feasting and celebration. There the marriage would be consummated. And it would be a great and joyous time. Now, during this betrothal period, they took very seriously their commitment to one another. And in fact, a betrothal could only be broken by a certificate of divorce. And a certificate of divorce could only be granted upon a sustained, provable charge of infidelity, which was equated to adultery. And so if one or the other of the parties had been faithful, sexually unfaithful to the other, then there could be a termination of the betrothal. But other than that, there was no breakage. They were married in in the eyes of the community, except they had yet to come together. 
And so look again, verse 18. It is during this time, while they are during this betrothal period, before they had come together, that she is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. What an amazing understatement, huh? Found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Beloved, Mary had been told that this was going to happen, right? The angel Gabriel had appeared to her and and told her that she would conceive in her womb a holy offspring by the Spirit of God. Well, that's one thing to, to sort of hear it and acknowledge it. It's another thing for it to happen. And so she finds herself here pregnant. I am sure running through her mind had to be questions like, what is everybody going to think? Right? What are they going to say to me when I obviously I turn up pregnant? What is Joseph going to say? What an amazing level of faith this young 13-year-old girl has in the face of these circumstances. For her, it appears to the outward observer looking on that she has been unfaithful, that she has broken her betrothal commitment, committed adultery, punishable actually by stoning under the Mosaic law, although by the first century most agree that stoning was not commonly practiced. But there would have been certainly the social ostracization to be divorced, to be found unfaithful. Verse 19, Joseph, her husband, Being a righteous man, it says, not wanting to disgrace her, desires to put her away secretly. Joseph finds out she's pregnant. Again, imagine the conversation. Joseph, I've got something I need to tell you. I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit of God. And I can imagine Joseph saying, right. I mean, what a situation to be put in. You just feel the tension of it all. Joseph, it says he's a righteous man. That's a man that wholeheartedly loves the Lord as God. He wants to do what is right. He wants the will of God to be manifest in his life. And he knows that there is no possible way he can take Mary now. Love her, he does. Even though he could forgive, he cannot take her. For she has broken The betrothal commitment. And so he desires to put it away, he says. But he wants to do it secretly. He doesn't want a public certificate of divorce. He doesn't want to bring her before the elders and humiliate her and her family. And so he wants to do it in some sort of secret way that at least perhaps for a time he can postpone the shame that's going to come to this young woman. And so verse 20, it says, while he's considering this, behold, pay attention is what it means You won't believe what happens. An angel appears to him. An angel appears to him in a dream and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take her as your wife. For that which has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph responds in faith, doesn't he? He takes her unto himself. He he marries her. They, They shorten the betrothal period. He takes her as his wife. They begin their life together under these kind of difficult circumstances. In full faith in the Lord his God. Executing exactly the message that the angel gives. He says, verse 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, not Joseph. 
You will not name this child after yourself because he is not your son. You will name him Jesus. Joseph promptly obeys. And in this, verse 23, Matthew finds the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Behold, right? Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Beloved, in this very simple narrative, there is a mother load of theological truth. And what I want to do in the time that remains is begin to mine that a little bit with you. I want to look at the mystery and the ministry of Messiah. And the reason I want to do that is because I want you to be awestruck this Christmas. I want you to hear this story new this year. I want you to fall on your face in the presence of probably the greatest miracle the world has ever known. God became man. Let's look together here now at the mystery of Messiah. And I want to do this with you by a series of questions. I want to explore the mystery in three questions. They are available for you on your handout. So you can follow along there if you'd like. And my first question is a very simple question. And that is, how could a son of Solomon sit on the Davidic throne? How could a son of Solomon sit on the Davidic throne? And you might say, well, why are you asking me that kind of question? Well, the, answer, the reason I'm asking it is because of the genealogy that's given to us here. So you've got to turn back a little bit for that. Looking at verses 10 and 11. It says to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh Ammon, and to Ammon Josiah. And and to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, if you were steeped in the Old Testament history, when you read the name Jeconiah, your ears would perk up. Your ears would perk up. Because Jeconiah, you would remember, was a cursed king. That he had been cursed. In fact, if you will turn with me back to Jeremiah chapter 22, I will reacquaint you with that curse. Jeremiah 22 and beginning in verse 24. Now, Jeconiah is known in the Old Testament three different names. He's known as Jeconiah, he's known as Jehoiachin, and he's known as Coniah. So, all three different names for the same man. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. And I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. This man's descendants will never sit on the Davidic throne, the prophet says. Mark it down, the prophet says. Go with me to the left, over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that through his offspring, the Messiah will come. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, listen to what God promises David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. That is Solomon. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God has promised David that through his son Solomon, forever the kingdom will be established. In Jeremiah, through the mouth of that prophet, God has said, write it down. Never through Solomon will a son sit on the throne. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. It's clear in this genealogy that Messiah comes through Solomon. How could it be that God promises never will your son sit on the throne and he promises in another place that absolutely your son sits on the throne? How does he resolve such issues? Such apparently conflicting promises. The answer, beloved, is in the mystery of Messiah. The answer is in verse 18, that the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ is conceived of the Spirit of God. And that thus, physically, he does not descend through the line of Jeconiah. It has been cut off. Yet his claim to the Davidic throne flows legally through that line, yet his lineage flows through through Mary, as Luke tells us, through through the son Nathan, not Solomon. So Jesus Christ, born of Mary through the son of of Nathan, his legal right to rule through Solomon, God is able to keep the commitment of The child not sitting on the throne and the child sitting on the throne. Resolved in the virgin birth. Beyond that, as we look at mystery of Messiah, there is an ancient promise back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that says the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now, women don't have seed, do they? Seed is traditionally referred to as the male contribution. There, back in Genesis 3, you'll remember mankind was ruined through the fall of Adam. And yet there is this ancient prophecy that says God will deliver his creation someday through the seed of a woman, not a man. And then Isaiah picks up that ancient prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 7 and in verse 14, 
And there he says, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Seven centuries before the birth of Christ. The prophet speaks to the king Ahaz. The nation is now under pressure. It's, it's going to be overrun. The Davidic line is going to be wiped out. Ahaz is concerned that the house will be destroyed, the house of David. And so he secretly makes a pact with the king of Assyria to rescue them. And at that exact moment, you can turn there if you like, Isaiah chapter 7. At that exact moment, God sends the prophet to Ahaz. And he says, Ahaz, I will deliver the nation. Do not worry, you will not, the kingdom will not be overthrown. The Davidic line will not be cut off. And to prove this, Ahaz, ask for a sign and make it as big as you want. Whatever you want, Ahaz, I will give to you. And in feigned piety, Ahaz says, oh no, I wouldn't ask the Lord for a sign. Because he'd already made a side treaty using man's ways to bring about the deliverance of the nation. And so in verse 13, the prophet says, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for one, but I'm going to give you one anyway. And the sign of the deliverance of the nation and the preservation of the line of David will be a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. How can the woman have a seed? How can the line be delivered? The answer The virgin birth. The virgin birth. Third. And this is back to Matthew 1. The very name given by the angel. Emmanuel. God with us. Mystery of Messiah. How can God be with us without destroying us? How can it be that God can be among us and not destroy us? The Bible is exceedingly clear. God dwells in unapproachable holiness, right? For example, it says in Exodus 33, verse 20, No man can see me and live. It says in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. Exodus 19, verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people all around the Mount Sinai, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Even the tabernacle itself had a series of barriers and obstacles to keep people away from God. How can it be that God is with us without destroying us? The answer, beloved is a virgin birth, right? It is the incarnation. It is the wedding of undiminished deity and unfallen humanity into the God-man, Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The apostle says it over in Colossians 2, verse 9, For in Him that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Jesus Christ, there is fully man and fully God. How can God dwell among us and not destroy us? The answer is Jesus Christ. 
Now, that's easy to say. It's easy to talk about the virgin birth, right? It's easy to talk about the incarnation. Easy to say, hard to conceive. What is it? How? Undiminished deity, unfallen humanity? Cut him, he bleeds. Let him stay up too late at night, he's tired. Forget to give him breakfast and lunch and he hungers. Crucify him and he dies. Yet he walks on the water, returns loaves and fish to feed the multitudes. He restores people's severed ears. He, he gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He raises the dead. Easy to say, hard to comprehend. In the face of that kind of mystery, the only response is to fall on your face. Fall on your face before your Savior. The mystery of Messiah. Well, beyond the mystery, I want to look briefly with you at the ministry. Here in Matthew 1, verse 21, the angel announces, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Let me make a few observations just from that statement alone. Well, first off, their sins. He will save the people from his people from their sins. People have sins. I mean, that may seem like a kind of an obvious statement, but it needs to be reinforced. We have sin. Not just the acts of wrongdoing, but the alienation from God, the failure to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have sin. We are in sin. We are cut off from our Creator. There is no relationship with the God who made us. That alienation easily shows itself in the forms of pride and greed and sensuality and arrogance. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. Those of you who have small children or perhaps have worked in the nursery lately, what you notice there is that these cute little children are prone to take their toy from their playmate and whack them over the head with it, right? My question is, which parent has ever sat down to teach their child how to do such a thing? Now, Junior, this is the way you steal their toy, and this is what you do once you've got it, right? You bash them with it. Yet they do it starting at the youngest age. Sin. It's just part of the fabric of who we are. Second observation. Jesus. You shall call his name, verse 21, Jesus. Yeshua, he will save, is what it means. He will save. Jesus will save. To be saved means to be rescued. It means to be delivered from something. We use that kind of terminology in our own culture, right? We, we are saved from danger. We are saved from hard work. Some of us. 
We are saved from various unpleasant tasks, right? Saved by the bell. We're a prize fighter. It means to be delivered. We need to be delivered from our sin. This one came, he shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. The reason we need to have a Savior is because we are entirely in our sin. Everything we do is defiled by our sin. There is no offering we can give to God. There is no righteous gift we can make on behalf of our own sin. Everything we touch, everything we do is contaminated. We need outside alien righteousness. We need someone to come and stand in our place. We need someone to save us from our sins. Jesus is our Savior. Think of it this way. A drowning man needs a boat to climb into. Jesus is our boat. We are drowning in our sins. We need Jesus. He will save. Third observation from this one verse. It is He who will save His people. He will save His people from their sins. Not everyone will be saved, beloved. I wish with all my heart that it were true, but not everyone will be saved. Jesus said it this way over in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. But only those who come find the rest. Not everyone will be saved. There is a, there is a misconception, there is a misunderstanding that is circulating that somehow there'll be a second chance. That somehow God is so merciful, so gracious, so kind that if, if someone doesn't get saved in this life, that in the next they'll have a second chance. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. The opportunity of salvation is today. The apostle says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Not everyone will be saved. Fourth, for it is he who will save his people. Salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. Grammatically, in the original language here, the he is very emphatic. It is, it is first in the in the sentence, it is He who will save and no one else. There are no other saviors. There is no other route to God. There are no other paths up the mountain or any of the other notions that are prevalent out there. There is only one way to God. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. There is only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. Again, that is an unpopular message. We live in a culture that is steeped in the idea that there are many ways to God. 
The Bible could not be more clear that that is wrong. That it is absolutely wrong. All religions do not teach basically the same thing. There are two religions. Well, maybe you could lump all the others in one, one category. They do teach the same thing. That is that you can work your way to God. And then there is Christianity that says that you may not work to God. God comes to you. The early church understood this. Peter himself, when given opportunity to preach, he proclaimed to his Jewish audience that he, that is Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders which has become the very cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no under, name under heaven that has been given by, among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is the one who will save us. And then finally, He will save us from our sins. He will deliver us from our sins. Oh, this is loaded. For His deliverance is not just a fire insurance policy, not just an escape from hell and the torments there. But it is deliverance. Being saved from our sins. That is that, yes, we'll escape the eternal fires of hell, but more than that, we will escape the very power of sin in our lives even now. The Bible says quite clearly that the natural man is under bondage to sin. He is a slave to sin. He cannot help himself but sin. That is what comes naturally. But in Jesus Christ, that bondage has been broken. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There was a movie that opened this weekend. A C.S. Lewis story, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I haven't seen it yet, but if I remember correctly the story, there is a tremendous illustration of what goes on there when the, when the walls of the castle of the White Witch are broken open and the captives are delivered. People are nodding at me. That's good. I got the story right. That is an illustration of the deliverance that comes in Christ. Under bondage to sin, the walls are ripped open and in Jesus Christ, the bondage is broken. Beloved, in Christ, we no longer have to sin. We no longer have to do so. We are no longer a slave. Oh, yes, the struggle is hard. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not saying the temptations are not strong. But the power has been broken. We are saved eternally. We are saved temporally. And He will save us completely. For when we see Him face to face, we will be like Him without sin. The last vestiges of sin will be removed. And we enter into the presence of Christ in glory. He will save us from our sin. Reflecting on such things, the Apostle Paul says it like this. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, that is salvation. That is being saved from our sins. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son 
that he might deliver his people. Christmas is a time for gift giving, isn't it? That's because God gave us the greatest gift imaginable. Your handout each week has a series of questions on the back. I've deliberately reserved some time here because I want to look at those with you. I write these questions each week in an attempt to help you to process what you've heard. So let me take just a few minutes of the time that remains and kind of show you how you could use this. Beloved, there is a tremendous danger for us. James warns of the danger. James 1.22, he says, Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It is so easy to become used to just being a good listener and doing nothing more than listening, listening, listening and never acting upon what we hear. These questions are one way among many to help you to apply that which you've heard. So we've written these questions. First, does the incarnation of the Son of God still cause you to wonder in amazement? When you read the story, when you hear the story, do you you wonder in amazement? Or do you, ho-hum, heard that one before. Does the incarnation of the Son of God cause you to fall down on your face in amazement? If not, why not? Beyond that, Why is it, do you think, that people are willing to to celebrate Jesus as a baby in a manger, but they want no part of Jesus crucified? Why is that? Why is it that they're content to send out Christmas cards with beautiful pictures of a child in a manger, right? We'll go door to door through these neighborhoods at this time of year, and, and there are homes that are spectacularly displayed, and many times they'll have some sort of of scene in their front yard, right, with, with Mary and Joseph and the child and so forth, yet they want to hear no part of the Easter message. Give me Christmas. You can keep Easter. But as Pastor Vince said this morning, without Easter, Christmas has no meaning. Why is it? Third, what are some ways that you can include the message of redemption as part of your Christmas celebration? When you wish someone Merry Christmas, is there a way that you can work into that greeting a statement about redemption? Merry Christmas. God became flesh that He might die to redeem you. That would set Him back, wouldn't it? That's a lot different than happy holidays. (laughs) Is there some way to work it in? How about your Christmas cards that you send to your family and friends, many of whom don't know Christ as their Savior? Is there a way to work the message of redemption in? Yes, there is. Be creative. Fourth, 
What specific steps will you take this year to prepare your heart to celebrate Christmas? What are you going to do and what are you doing to get ready for the celebration? I don't mean, do you have your shopping done? Right? Are you ready for Christmas? It's translated in our culture as, do you have your shopping done? Are your Christmas lights up? Do you have the stockings hung on the chimney with care and hopes that whatever his name will soon be there, right? Well, let me share with you some of the ways that I am trying to prepare my heart this year. One is that I am reading and meditating on the Christmas story on a regular basis. I am reading the Christmas story in both Matthew and Luke and and just thinking about what I'm reading. Not reading through the words, but pausing and in wonderment of it all. Asking myself, what did Joseph think? What was Mary feeling? What about those shepherds that came? What about the Magi? who traveled hundreds of miles to see the king. Stop, read, meditate. Slow down. That's what I'm doing to prepare my heart for Christmas this year. I'm trying to slow down so that it's not a blur. Taking time to thank God for sending Jesus to save me. Personally, thanking God to send, for sending Christ to save me. Not in a general sense. Thank you for sending Christ to be the Savior of the world. Thank you for sending Christ to save me. Slow down. So it doesn't whiz by me. Preaching. All the month of December from the Christmas accounts. To prepare your heart and mine for Christmas. Slow down so Christmas is not a blur and runs by me. Singing Christmas carols to myself as I'm out and about in the car. Slow down so that Christmas doesn't run on by. Beloved, we have a tremendous opportunity this year. December 25th falls on a Sunday. I can't think of a better way to celebrate the birth of my Savior than to be here with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, united in the family of God by the indwelling presence of the Spirit. I can't think of a place I'd rather be. I hope I'll see you here. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for Christmas. Thank you for the ancient plan conceived within the triune Godhead before the beginning of time for the creation and redemption of mankind. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who left the throne room of glory to come to earth to be born of a woman 
born under the law. To live a life of obscurity in ancient Palestine. To launch forth upon the world and declare himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. To demonstrate his saving power through his many miracles. And then to suffer the rejection of his own people. To go to a Roman cross and to give his life a ransom for many. Thank you, Father, for saving my soul. Thank you for making me a part of your great Christmas gift. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that, Lord, if they have yet to begun, begin to prepare themselves to truly celebrate this great gift, I pray that beginning today, you would help them to do so. For those who are underway, continue to encourage them, Father. May this Christmas be a, an amazing time for all of us. Reacquaint us with that great story. We pray in the name of the one who came for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.